Well, today, uh, back to the whiteboard. And uh, again, I would say take notes because I, I think those who take notes get to cut the line going into heaven. And so you don't want to get stuck outside. But our series and title is Nothing But Net. Now, here's the deal. Today's sermon is going to end with that sentence, and you're not even going to see it coming, all right? In addition to that, we are going to learn how to preach. Someone say preach. I think it is so critical for a, a community of faith to really take serious the, the call to steward God's word and to understand that it's not just uh, individuals like myself with the title pastor who are charged with the responsibility of championing God's word in the world. Every single one of us uh, is entrusted with some measure of influence and for whatever reason, God seeks to implant his word in our heart and then to share it with the world. You are the conduit of the good news for other people to hear it. You need to, to learn how to preach and we're, we're gonna get to that. And then in addition to that, I wanna talk about our team's mentality. Yes, I spelled that right. Now, know this, there's a big difference between our mentality and our personality, okay? So we're gonna get to that uh, because I do think it is what makes us different that makes the difference. The goal is not for us to be carbon copies of each other. The goal for us is not to take on the same personality, start dressing the same, behaving the same. No, it's, it's what makes us different that makes the difference. Somehow, God takes my broken edges and it fits together with your broken edges and her broken edges and his broken edges. And somehow, in a community of faith, God pieces together some beautiful mosaic that we get to be a part of and we just have to be true to ourselves and trust God's work in our life. It's, it's not the same personality, but if we can develop the same Mentality. Hey, we think on the same page. I think as a team, we can move forward in really effective ways. So we're going to talk about that. In addition to that, we are going to talk about coachability. Ever been to a game and seen some young people who now lack this? Yeah, it's frustrating. I want to take those kids out back. <laughs> in addition to coachability, we're going to talk about mall Cinnabons. Can I get an amen for Cinnabons? I mean, in our household, we don't say something tastes like heaven. We say it tastes like chewing on a baby angel. It's, it's kind of a weird way of saying it, but you'll think about it. Mall Cinnabons. Then we are going to talk about bracket busters. Two T's or one T? All right, thank you. I actually didn't know, and I get emails. And lastly, we are going to talk about scoreboard. Someone say it with me, scoreboard, which I think is a fantastic cheer. Oh, okay, so let's talk about personality. I do think all throughout scripture, God is drawing our attention to the way we think. Guys, this is so important, and this is where our, our world is getting tripped up, and quite honestly, as followers of Christ, we're becoming susceptible because we've become biblically illiterate, and we don't really understand how scripture is trying to inform our thinking. This is really problematic. And so what happens is, is we, we fall prey to really dysfunctional and at times very unproductive logic in our life. And so it's, it's assessing hey, how do we think? In fact, scripture would draw a lot of attention towards the way we think in terms of our transformation. Think about it this way. In Romans, it says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, 
Now, stop there. First, you have to identify what are the patterns that you see in the world. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Okay, so transformation, it begins in the mind and it's understanding, hey, God wants us to think in a certain way. Now, I stole this concept from a guy by the name of Jim Jim Collins, which anyone like to hear that your pastor stole? No? All right. Jim Collins, he wrote this book called Good to Great. And the, the, basically, the premise of the book is good is the enemy of great. We don't have great marriages because we have good marriages. We don't have great schools because we have good schools. We don't have great companies because we have good companies. We don't raise great children because we have good children. Essentially, what it's saying is goodness comes with complacency. And sometimes good is the enemy of great is what he would argue. And in this book, he has what he calls the hedgehog concept. Any animal lovers? Wave at me if you're an animal lover. Yeah, there you go. The hedgehog concept is fascinating. Essentially what he says is in the wild, there are a lot of animals that are far more impressive than the hedgehog. If you were to compare a a hedgehog to a fox, no comparison. A fox is stronger, sleeker, faster, more athletic, has a bigger bite. It's even bigger in size. The fox is much more impressive than the hedgehog. However, the hedgehog has this one feature, the ability to stand up its gnarly hair when needed on command to stab and poke his predators. And that one feature allows the hedgehog to not only survive, but to thrive in the wild. And so basically he says in this hedgehog concept, if you can find that unique niche, ultimately that is your key or maybe secret to thriving and excelling within your niche within the world. I wanna take this hedgehog concept and I wanna see if we can borrow it and apply it to the way we think. If you were to look at everything God says about the way we think and the ways in which he's priming our minds, I think there are three primary ways in scripture. And the first one is I see in scripture, God wants us to think like apostles. This is really key. Now understand the ramp of scripture. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were made through him. And that's John 1, but also in Genesis 1, it talks about in the beginning, God spoke life into existence. And and there's this ramp where after the fall of man, God's redemptive work is unfolding in humanity. And it reaches its climax when Jesus shows up, God in a bod. The incarnation steps into our shoes and he lives a perfect life. That's huge. Sometimes we overlook the perfection of our Jesus. It's really amazing. He lives a perfect life, dies a sinless death, dies a criminal's death. He is brutally murdered and publicly humiliated, hung on a cross, then tucked away in a tomb, all to come back three days later. I mean, to to offer the world the ultimate victory. And then... He says, I am going to ascend to the Father and this is good news for you because I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit shows up on Pentecost and empowers the apostles to march forward with the good news and to launch the local church and a movement known as Christianity that is touched down on every continent around the world that is really impressive what these apostles did, that they were rooted in conviction. And uh, apostles are, they're entrepreneurial in their thinking, 
They're trailblazers, they're pioneers in their thinking. They are rooted to a cause and they just feel that, hey, I have to do something about what I'm seeing. You ever felt that? You ever looked at the world and there's an impulse within your heart that says, I just can't sit back and be an innocent bystander. I have to do something. That's an impossible way of thinking. In addition to that, I think God wants us to think like artists. Now, this is really sad to me because there are studies out, and you can do your own research, don't just take my word for it, that says that a child, by the time they reach their teen years, most children have completely lost their imagination. They say something about our life and approach to it just suppresses an individual's imagination. And it's really sad. There was a study done on a group of kids, a nationwide study, kids all around the country, and they went into kindergarten classrooms, and they asked the classrooms, they said, one question, how many of you are an artist? All the hands go up, 100%. All the kids said, you know what? I'm an artist. But by the time they get to high school, it was like less than 10% of students identified themselves as artists. And the the research was saying, hey, something is happening in life and in our education system and in society that is suppressing the imagination and the artistic ability of children. And I think, uh, well, when it comes to creativity, the local church ought to corner the market on creativity because we claim to be connected to the source, the ultimate creator of the heavens and the earth and all things in it, our God is brilliant. Like if you're opening the pages of scripture and you are just building your theology page by page, well, Genesis one opens up to a very artistic God. I mean, it begins with a light show. In the beginning, let there be light. So if you have problems with lights in church, I don't know, take it up with him. It begins with a light show. And then it begins with him just creating earth and sky. I mean, he starts to hang the moon, the sun, the stars. He starts to build mountains and oceans and put live animals in each. Before you know it, you've got mountain goats and clownfish and octopuses. I mean, how creative do you have to be to come up with an octopus? He's extremely creative. And I think the call to his children is to live with radical creativity, to push the boundaries on expressing how good our God is. I think we should think like artists. And lastly, we should think like athletes. Can I get an amen? We should think like athletes all all throughout scripture. There are verses, the type that say, hey, let us run the race. Yeah, why? So we can win. And there's this this call to compete within the world, not in an unhealthy, dysfunctional way that we see exemplified in our culture, but in a way that truly brings about wins for everyone around. It's amazing. And so I think God wants us to hone our thinking. Hey, when we think in these ways, I think one, as a community of faith, we really, uh, well, we really develop some synergy and we develop some unity. And I think God can really do some impressive things among us. I think if you're looking at the apostle, the apostles needed two things, conviction and indignation. There was something in them that was a conviction of, no, that's not right rooted in the truth, rooted in God's word, rooted in the gospel. And there's this indignation, I have to do something. So the apostle, they need conviction 
and indignation. You tracking with me? The artist needs a canvas and imagination. The artist is saying, hey, what do I have before me and how can I be creative? With this measure of influence and these tools and these resources and with this opportunity, how can I think outside the box and how can I do something unique and how can I produce something beautiful? That's how an artist would think. And then an athlete, well, they need a challenge and inspiration. See, I, I love in scripture when I read of guys like Elijah who is so bold in his faith that he stands alone on top of Mount Carmel and he faces off with all the prophets of Baal and he's so confident, bring it on, your God versus my God, let's see who wins because he knew who his God was. He knew, hey, my God is unparalleled, unmatched. He's undefeated, undisputed, and he is the one and only creator of the heavens and the earth, the savior of the world, the light of the world, our prince of peace, our rock, our redeemer, our shield, our reward. Oh, I'm gonna get some of you to clap at some point. He's a big deal. And I think athletes don't shy away from the competition. Sure, bring it on. My God has stood the test of time from the very beginning of time. He's not afraid of what our culture is gonna present. Bring it on, amen. This is how we should think. And when we develop that way of thinking, I'm just telling you, I think we start to align with how God wants us to approach life. Now, when it comes to preaching, hold that in thought. I came out of school where I was kind of, I wanna be careful how I say this. Maybe a little frustrated in my training. Here's why. I, when you're, you're coming out of school, pursuing a field in which I went into, they teach you how to preach. And a lot of times it's, it's pretty basic. It's, hey, you need to have a cute introduction with a Bible verse, point, quote, illustration, supporting verse. Point, quote, illustration, supporting verse. That's your outline. It's really kind of basic how you do it. But my thing was, is walking away is the real question isn't how to preach. Anybody could put together a speech. The real question is what to preach. How do you teach people to develop a discernment? How do you teach them to wield their own sword? How do you teach them to lean into God's word and say, I've got a revelation and God is speaking to me and he desires to speak through me. How do you discern what to preach? Now, Here's what I've come up with. I call it the art of revelation. And no, it's original to me, so it comes from a faulty source. So if you don't like it, I get it. But I would say, first off, it starts with preparation. Now, this might be the most important thing you hear me say all day, and that is this. There is no substitute for God's word and prayer. Folks, there is no substitute for God's word and prayer. And some of you have fallen into the, the illusion that you can be a follower of Christ without God's word and a life of prayer. And, and I'm just telling you, uh, that is a, well, it's just not a good approach to how God wants us to live this thing out. That it is living rooted in God's word and it's just becoming a student and learning to study and going deeper and, and pressing through. And you should know when it comes to my own preparation, a lot of times, it's a grind. This is not the thrilling part of my sermon prep. A lot of times it's getting into wormholes and reading a lot of stuff and taking in a lot of information and pairing verses with verses and looking at commentary and journaling some things. But a lot of times I walk away with a mind cramp and I've got nothing. 
It's got nothing. Now, I love giving people handles. One thing I would say when, in terms of preparation, I dare you to go two layers deep in the footnotes. Now, now pay attention to this. When you read the Bible, you're gonna see a little letter sometimes at the end of words or sentences, and below, it'll put a footnote that links that passage to another passage in the Bible. So take the time to go to that other passage. In that other passage, you'll find another footnote. Follow that one. Just, just give it a shot for a week. Go two layers deep in the footnotes and see if scripture doesn't start to open your eyes to something. There is no you know, substitute for preparation. But there does come a point where you have to step away from it. And then you step into what I would call incubation, which these are some fun words to say. At some point, you have to allow God's word to uh, kind of facilitate itself within your, your, your subconscious. A lot of studies have been done about this, and many of you, you can relate to this. You've gone to bed at night with a lot of things on your mind, and you woke up in the morning to clarity. It's amazing how God designed our brains to work, that somehow in our subconscious, our mind continues to work, piecing things together, which ultimately forms a clear thought. You ever had that happen? Where you read something in the morning, you study, and then later on in the day, suddenly there's this aha moment. You have to step away into incubation, which then comes with illumination. Which to be clear, I said illumination, not illuminati for any conspiracy theorists in the room. But there comes this aha moment. And I promise you, if you read God's word and you become a person of prayer, he's going to talk to you throughout the day. I just promise you he will. Things will start to open your eyes and come to mind. And here is where I'm embarrassed to admit this. Here's where pastors, individuals like myself go wrong. This is where we don't lead well. Is sometimes we get this really cute idea and we just run with it and we stop there. But after illumination, you then have to focus on verification. This is so critical that you have to go and find support in scripture. You have to see, hey, does this idea align with the overarching narrative of God's word? Is this principle something that stands up and carries water over time? Can it find support throughout all of scripture? And a lot of times we, we attach ourselves to really superficial things, things that we haven't thought through or verified. And so after you know, illumination, you, you have to verify, is there something to this word? Guys, this is really important for us as followers of Christ. And this is where sometimes we, we receive some bad press in the world we live in. Because we go throughout life putting words in God's mouth. And hear me on this. Do not make a declaration that you did not receive God's authorization. That is spiritual forgery. And that leads to a whole lot of branding issues that we have within the Christian faith. It has to align with God's word. You have to be able to verify it. Once you can verify something, then you go into percolation. Any coffee fans? Yeah, you gotta let that thing brew. You gotta stew on it a little bit. You gotta think it through. And I always tell people, if you're not ready to say it in a sentence, you're not ready to say it. And sometimes you need to hone that thought and sharpen it. And so when I will prepare a message, I mean, I will apply it to so many different ways of life. So I'll have a thought and I'll think, 
How would I share this with a single mom? How would I share this with a drug addict? How would I share this with the CEO of a company? How would I share this with a teenager? How would I share this with someone going through divorce or someone who's been abused? How would I share this with someone who's terminally ill? How would I share this thought with someone who's been a Christian for 50 years? How would I share this thought with someone who's an atheist and proud of it? And suddenly when you start to add these layers, it sharpens your thought. And suddenly you, you arrive at a place where you truly have something of substance to share with somebody. And that is where you end with a revelation, which is a whole doctrinal concept in, in scripture. The doctrine of revelation is this simple idea that God desires to make himself known. And he is constantly revealing himself to us through his word and through our experiences. God is opening our eyes and giving us a revelation. And my goal is what would it look like if as a community, we just took serious God's word and we found pride in getting to share it and shape revelations that could change people's lives. That is such an enticing call. And here's the deal. Every single one of us at all of our campuses who calls ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, we are ministers of the gospel. If you're a Christian, you're a minister of the gospel. You don't have to have the title pastor and you don't have to work at a church. No, if you are a part of the faith and a part of the family of God, you are a minister of the gospel. And here's the deal. Here's a cute play on words for you. As ministers of the gospel, our job is to add minister the gospel. Does that work? Yeah, yeah. yeah. all right, that works. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Now, wave at me if you like classical music. Anyone else, you like classical music? Yeah, I love it. I, um, I love classical music. I'm kind of all over the place when it comes to music genres, but there are times that I just vibe out to classical piano music. And here, here would be a fun thing for you to do this week. Go on Spotify and just look up a classical musical playlist and sit down and slowly read Matthew chapter 26. Don't read through it quickly. Don't just try to rush. No, just take it in and let it simmer because Matthew chapter 26 is loaded. It's jarring. It's heartbreaking. It's exhilarating. It's beautiful. It's, it's even comical. It's, it's hard to get your mind around. There's a lot going on in Matthew chapter 26. And now if you have your Bibles, what you find is Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is, I mean, he's teaching and he's teaching and he is long-winded. Can I get some love for long-winded preachers? No? All right. Verse one of 26, check this out. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered, watch this, in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus, watch this sentence, 
when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, hang on to it. When Jesus was at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, or some translations will say fragrance, and she poured it on his head as he reclined. Someone say reclined. As he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, which soundtrack moment, anytime this cat's name is mentioned, it should be like, dun, 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 right? Like this guy was wild. Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he saw an opportunity to betray him. I mean, that's, there's a lot going on. And it's amazing to me because Jesus gets done teaching. And then he pulls his disciples together and he says, okay, now guys, remember, in two days, I'm gonna be delivered up and then crucified. I mean, that is such a loaded statement. Sometimes we read the Bible and we just breeze over that statement as if it's nothing. This was a crucial conversation. And I think it's always important to ask the question, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And my question is, is in that moment, what was it like to be on the other side of Jesus? I mean, how did the disciples receive him? Like, did he come in and say that emphatically? Like, did he show up and be like, guys, I'm gonna die. Like, was it emphatic or was it like professional? Was he like all business? All right, gentlemen, Let's come together. Let's go over the plan again. Remember, in two days, they're gonna take me and kill me, but it's gonna be a rough Thursday, even harder Friday, but I'll be back on Sunday. Remember the plan. <laughs> like, what, like, was it just business? Like, was he sentimental? Did he take a second to be like, guys, it's been a real honor serving with you. I think it was comical. I think Jesus pulled them together. and was like, all right, guys. Um, so we all know they're gonna come and get me and uh, they're going to kill me. <laughs> but don't you worry. I'm gonna give them 72 hours to think they won, and then I'm coming back. It's gonna be wild. It feels comical. Jesus says, I'm about to die. And then the, the spotlight, the director of heaven shifts the focus. And where does it go? To Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas is the head and high priest. And he's gathered with the other priest to plot and scheme how to kill Jesus. Recently, 
Kristen and I got to go to Israel with a group of people and we actually were able to go to Caiaphas's house. The very place where they held Jesus captive, where Caiaphas had the other priests show up and before they handed him over to Pontius Pilate and the Romans, the priests themselves punched and spit and slapped and mocked and ripped hair out of his beard. I mean, the priest went to work on our savior. Now we were at the, we're in the Holy Lands for about 10 days and we probably took a thousand pictures, but that was the one place. Everyone kind of has their moment when you're in the Holy Lands. That was the one place Kristen and I could not take a picture. Tourism just didn't seem appropriate. It was the one place that just rocked us to our core. And when you go into Caiaphas's house, in his basement, he had a prison. And we stood in the very prison they held Jesus in. And the idea that a priest would have a prison just rocked me to my core. That's everything that is wrong with religion, that a priest would have a prison. And then the director of heaven brings it back. And now where do we find ourselves? Simon's house. Huge loaded statement. Jesus then joined a group of others for dinner at Simon the leper's house in Bethany. Now here's my question. When Jesus shows up for dinner and everybody gathers, is Simon still a leper? No, it would have been against the law for Jesus or anybody to be in close proximity, let alone a house with Simon the leper. So clearly Simon has been healed, but he's still known by his condition. Some of you can relate to this. Here's what's gonna happen if you give your life to Christ. Here's what some of you've already experienced. Here's where some of you are frustrated and discouraged. The moment you say yes to Jesus, your reality will start outpacing your reputation. Oh, I wish I could stomp on this chair. Think about it. You've been healed of it, but you're still known by it. Come on, wave at me if you can relate to that. You've been healed of it, but you're still known by it. And what you find is this man, Simon, still had people reminding him of his days of leprosy. And here's the hard thing when you say yes to Christ. There are people in your life who think it is their assignment to constantly remind you of your shortcomings, your failures, and your shame. And so here's the deal. If you're gonna thrive in this life of faith, you need to surround yourself, not with people who remind you of your former reputation, but people who remind you of your current reality. You have been bought with a price and you are born again in Christ. Your, your reputation, it, it outpaces, or your reality, it outpaces your reputation. You've been healed of it, but you're still known by it. And so Simon invites Jesus over for dinner. And here's the shocking thing. Jesus shows up. Think about the week Jesus is about to have. Think about the things that are on his mind. Think about the weight, the burden, the stress. He's about to be betrayed by a close friend. He is about to be publicly humiliated. He is about to be publicly and gruesomely murdered. 
yet he finds the time and the willingness to say, I'll come over for dinner. And what was the word I had you repeat? Reclined. Oh, do a word search on that. You go throughout the Bible and you find Jesus at dinner parties. You find Jesus sitting at tables and there's always these consistent phrases. There were sinners and tax collectors and Jesus was reclining at the table. And now he's at Simon the leper's house, once again, reclining. Scripture wants us to know amidst all the pressure and all the complexities and all the taboo things swirling about him and all the hatred and the lies and everything, he still remarkably composed and comfortable and still willing to say, Simon, I'll come over to your house. I love this about our Jesus. We tend to think that we bear the weight of the world on our shoulders, but let's be honest. None of us carry the weight of the world on our shoulders, but Jesus lived every single day of his life with your world and my world, and your child's world, and your grandchildren's world, and your co-worker's world, and your enemy's world, and people you dislike, and people you misjudge, and people you don't understand, the weight of everybody, past, present, and future, on his shoulders, and he still, in the 11th hour, has the courage and the composure to recline at a table, also that he can reinforce a new reality in the life of Simon. This Jesus is amazing. It's unbelievable. And I think that is something some of you, if not all of us, should be very encouraged by and take to heart. That our God works by invitation, not by invasion. But if you would invite him in, this God shows up in the worst of times. And he reminds us of our new reality. It's saying, God, would you lean into my life and would you, would you instruct me? Would you teach me? Would you coach me? And we all need coaching. Well, I think there are three relationships. I'd write this one down. Three relationships that every person needs. We all need assignments. We all need associates. And we all need additions. We all need people that we're pouring into. We also need people that we're doing life with. But maybe most importantly, we need people who we've given access and authority to speak into our life. And a lot of people run into spiritual bankruptcy because they're constantly pouring out and they don't have anyone pouring in. And you need someone to coach you, to give you feedback and instruction. And first and foremost, that person ought to be Jesus in your life. And I think this is why I love sports. This is why I think it's important for young people to participate in them because it teaches them how to handle feedback at a young age because our culture and our society is becoming so delicate, so easily offendable, so just, oh, it's fragile. We can't receive any type of feedback. And I tend to give my kids a lot of it. And I spend a lot of time at games and gyms and fields, driving from practices, and we have a lot of conversations. Let's talk about what you like about the game. Let's talk about where you feel like you're doing well. Let's talk about some of the things your coach is telling you. What do you think about that? Let's talk about some of the areas that you can maybe improve. Where are some opportunities that you can get better? And then I'll always ask him, hey, do you have any feedback for dad? 
Anything about this conversation that isn't making sense? Anything about this conversation that's frustrating you or offending you? Do you have any feedback for dad? The other day I'm in the car. It's me and my oldest three, Riley, Cannon, and Miles. Cannon is, he's brilliant. We call him Baby Yoda. He's just witty and he's good with words and he's so tenderhearted. And I said, do you guys have any feedback? And Cannon goes, like, on this conversation or on other things as well? <laughs> and I said, well, buddy, is there, is there something else you'd like to give dad some feedback on? To which he said, well, how about your preaching? <laughs> and uh, come to find out, these jokers have been stocking ammunition. So if I seem insecure, I came off a week of development at home with my three children. I said, yeah, what's your feedback? And he said, well, you know, Dad, and he, you guys, this kid is so kind. He says, you know, I, I think you could give a little attention or focus to keeping their attention. Maybe, maybe focus on getting their attention a little better. And uh, to which I said, well, buddy, do you think I'm having a hard time keeping their attention? And he doesn't even answer the question. He goes on to answer a question he wants me to ask. And all he says, he goes, you know, Dad, when I want to get people's attention, I just say something interesting. <laughs> Is that not amazing? I mean, you cannot even pay a life coach to be that accurate and honest. I just say something interesting. Folks, I'm trying to say something interesting. But feedback, it's... It's super helpful. That's what coachability is. Mall Cinnabons. Recently, someone came into the office and they had Cinnabons. Now, if there's ever a Cinnabon within 300 yards of a human, their nose detects it, right? And so I smell these Cinnabons and it immediately transports me to a, a mall. This is, I think, the first time I'd ever experienced Cinnabons outside of a mall. And they say that your smell is the number one sense tied to memory. So I smell these Cinnabons and immediately I just, I think of a shopping center. And I say that because this woman pulls out a flask, a jar of fragrance, highly concentrated, not the diluted stuff you and I get. Like this stuff was pure and oily. And she just dumps it on Jesus's head. I mean, it's the Gatorade moment. She douses them with this fragrance to which the disciples are like, why would you do this? This is such a waste. And now Jesus is gonna smell like this for weeks. You ever had a smell stuck to you? Like you were at a bonfire and your hair smelled like smoke for the whole next week, your coat smelled like smoke. Jesus is going to smell like this for weeks, which is beautiful. If you go into the pages of Scripture, what you find is the monarchs had this tradition, this practice. You can see it in the life of Saul. You can see it in the history books. It would happen on three occasions. One, either when a new king was anointed and appointed as king. Two, when a king had passed away. And three, when a king just wanted to make his way out into the city among the people, what they would do is they would plan a parade. They would plan a, a parade in which the, the king would be ushered through the city. And because of the tight spaces and the crowds, most people weren't able to see him. But what they would do is they would pour fragrance on the king. 
So as he was making his way throughout the city, even if you couldn't see him, don't miss this, even if you couldn't see him, you could sense him. That you could be around the corner and think, is the king nearby? I think the king is around the corner. So they douse Jesus, she does, with this very expensive fragrance, which probably would have been a life savings. And then Jesus is paraded through a city and everyone he came in contact with would have had the thought, is there a king nearby? So when the priests start beating on him, anyone else smell the king? And when the Romans started whipping him, is the king in town? And as he carried his own cross through the city, anyone else sensing the king? And as he hung on a cross before Roman soldiers, again, people would have been thinking, I can't see him, but I sense the king. And hiding in plain sight is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and with the arms stretched out wide, <laughs> defeating death, hell, and the grave. This is amazing, the anointing. He was also anointed at Caiaphas' house. Now, this is, this is fascinating. And I'm gonna go long on my time, but this is gonna serve some of you well. And if you have to leave, blessings. But here's the deal. <laughs> they bring Jesus to Caiaphas' house. Also, the priest could gather and beat up on Jesus before they handed him over. Now, if you go throughout the pages of the Old Testament, what you're gonna find is on the day of atonement, the sacrifice for the sins of the nation, they would sacrifice a bull, a fattened calf. They do all these different things. And in order to go about the sacrifice, they had to anoint the sacrifice. And you know how they would anoint the sacrifice? All the priests had to lay their hands on the sacrifice. To be anointed means to be set apart for a divine purpose. And here they have them in the prison of the priest's home and all the priests are together and they're laying hands on Jesus and they don't even realize it. They think they're beating him and they're blessing him. And he is being anointed and set apart. It is amazing. It's unbelievable. That is why in this moment, it is the ultimate bracket buster. Because the powers of the day, the Romans and the religious elite, you know how strange enemies make common friends? And they, they come together. And the thought is, there's no way we can lose. The two of us together are gonna stomp out this rabbi from Nazareth. And boy, does he bust their brackets. They think it's a done deal. And in their arrogance, they think the, the win is theirs. And Jesus comes back with the most decisive victory in human history that we're still talking about. So Jesus says about this woman, he says, pay attention to what she's doing. Because for years upon years, throughout human history. Whenever they open up the pages of the gospel, they're gonna talk about this story. Now, did Jesus fulfill his promise to her? Jesus fulfilled his promise to her. 
Here we sit 2,000 years later talking about her story. This woman gave it all. It's amazing. And I love that our God never lies. And you should know, he never lies. He said it, so be it, you believe it, amen? What's amazing is she gives it all. And the director of heaven again shifts our focus to Judas, who goes to the priest and says, hey, I'm cashing in. He's about to die anyways. How much will you give me for him? And they say, we will give you 30 shekels of silver. Now, now check this out. Open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, where the law is coming into play and they're, they're establishing some standards for society. Watch this verse, verse 32. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give their master 30 shekels of silver. 30 shekels of silver was the bare minimum for the cheapest burial you could provide. So they come, they're like, hey, Judas is like, what will you give me for this guy? And they're like, what's the bare minimum to bury this trash? That was their mentality. And what you have is two appraisals, two appraisals. One woman saying he's worth it all. And one guy saying, man, he's worth the bare minimum. It's a bargain, I'm getting him on clearance. And represented in our church and churches all across the country are people who fall into both of those categories. And so what you find is when all is said and done, she was right. Do you think she felt good about her decision? I mean, when she seen Jesus defeat death, come back to life, do you think she felt good about it? Do you think now she stands in eternity in any way regretting her alabaster jar of fragrance? She's like, absolutely not. This life of faith, it came with some expenses, but it was worth it. I'd do it all over again. Paul would say the same thing. Ephesians, or no, Philippians chapter three. I end with this. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's saying, hey, a life of faith that comes with ex expenses. Sometimes it'll come at the expense of your time. Sometimes it'll come at the expense of relationships. Sometimes it'll come at the expense of your talent. Sometimes it'll come at the expense of your priorities. Sometimes it'll come at the expense of your finances. But in the end, if Christ is all you have, it's a gain. And if you're talking, yes. And if you're talking about this with an accountant and you say, hey, what do you call it? when there's a gain left over after expenses, he would say, net, nothing but net. Yeah.